Thank you, Mary Catherine. Uh, we're going to be in uh, in Second Samuel uh, four and five today, but it it is good to be reminded again that uh, that the Lord doesn't keep a record of sins, which is interesting because we do, right? I keep a record of my own sins. I keep, you know, I have a a mental. Uh, 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 a, a, a mental record of all of the, the times that I've screwed up and, and, and I can use that to go back and beat myself up if I feel like I don't feel good enough. And I assume that everyone else has a record of my wrongs as well, but the Lord uh, doesn't do that. So I think that that is a good thing for us to be encouraged by today. Um, what we're going to be talking about today is we're talking about the life of David as he, as he transitions into, uh, into the, fully into the third act of his life. And and one of the things we talked about last week, and we're going to continue to talk about this week, is that, is that David starts to experience success, and we think that, in our world, that once we get to a certain level of stability and success in our lives, that, that things are going to be smooth now and good, right? That, that like, the, the most dangerous times in our lives are when we're young and when we're full of energy, and that's when we're most likely to do things that are going to damage us for life. And then once we get into the more stable parts of our lives where we become more comfortable, then everything will be, be easier. And that's not necessarily true, and that's certainly not what we see in the life of David, that, that as we follow David, it seems that as David gets into the most stable parts of his life, where he is finally king as God has called him to be, that he is no longer trying to attain something, but, but has attained it and is attempting to manage it, that this becomes the most dangerous time of David's life. And in some ways, this is the part of David's life that he handles the worst, David could handle being the boy wonder. David could handle being the outlaw on the run. David is having a very difficult time being king. And I think that that's an interesting thing for us to, to, to think about as we go forward in the text and as we think about our own lives, that sometimes getting what we want could be the most dangerous thing that, that can happen to us. So just to clarify where we are right now in the story, there's a civil war happening. David has just become... Uh, king in Hebron in the south, but Saul's son Ishbosheth is being propped up by Abner, uh, the military leader, and he's the king in the north. So we have David in the south, we have Ishbosheth in the north. Now Abner, as of last week, has just been murdered in the street. So, uh, uh, so this is where we are. Ishbosheth's military leader, the person who was propping him up, has, has just been uh, killed. And now we start to see this thing, uh, th this thing start to discri discriminate. And um, so we've, this has been going on for two years. We've had two years of civil war. And in the midst of this, as Judah, the, David's people, and, and the Israelites to the north, as they're fighting, the biggest beneficiary of this has been the Philistines, who are the enemy of both of them. And as they're divided, they've been benefiting from this the whole time. They don't have a cohesive, organized uh, force to go against them. So they can just... Uh, cause a lot of problems for everybody. So this has been a bad scene. So this is a lot of chaos, and this is a challenge. And this is a challenge for David, because David has always wanted to be God's king. That's what he was called to be. Saul was supposed to be God's king. Saul wasn't God's king. David is supposed to be God's king, and he's trying to live that way. And but the problem is, is that once he became king, most of the world expects him to be like the rest of the kings. And we see that begin to happen in this story here. Now, Rechab and Banna, um, we learn about them a little bit earlier. We just don't have time to go into every verse. But um, Rechab and Banna are, 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 are military mercenaries who worked for Ishbosheth. 
They were his people, they did some raiding, they made their living off stealing things from other people and murder. So, they worked for Ishbosheth, but now, mostly Abner, but on behalf of Ishbosheth. Now that Abner's gone, the thing, things have changed. Now, Rechab and Banna, the sons of Rimon, the, Beth, uh, the Berethite, set out for the house of Ishbosheth, and they arrived there in the heat of the day while he was taking his noonday rest. And they went into the inner part of the house as if to get some wheat, and then they stabbed him in the stomach. And then Rechab and his brother slipped away. Okay? So you see the, 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 what they're doing. And, and, what they, uh, and, and what they did makes sense as you see what they, what, what they do next. They had gone into the house while he was lying on the bed in his bedroom. And after they stabbed and killed him, they cut off his head, taking it with him. And they traveled all night by way of the Arabah. And they brought the head of Ishbosheth to David at Hebron and said to the king, Here is the head of Ishbosheth, son of Saul, your enemy who tried to kill you. This day the Lord has avenged my lord the king against Saul and his offspring. So, this is a very brutal scene, but in their world, for Rechab and Banna, this makes sense. They are muscle for hire. That is their job. And, they, and as they were, they were muscle for hire on the team that is losing, and they want to change teams to be on the winning team now. And the way that they are going to buy their way onto the winning team is by, is by murdering their old boss and proving their loyalty to the new boss. This is not an unusual story in the ancient world or even today. This sounds like something that, that, that ancient kings or gangsters or cartel leaders or, or, or warlords, this is the kind of thing that happens in this brutal world. And... and they were, and in the world and minds of people who benefit from violence and terror, this, this deal that Rechab and Banna are striking makes perfect sense. But that is not the kind of king that David has been called to be. David has been called, not been called to be a king who proves himself by his military might and his ability to destroy his enemies. This is what the kings of Israel are supposed to look like. And this goes back to Deuteronomy chapter 17. So, in Deuteronomy chapter 17, the people are told not to get a king. They say, the Lord will be your king, pay attention to him only. But then the law says, but when you ignore that and get yourself a king, this is how the king is supposed to behave. The king, moreover, must not acquire great numbers of horses for himself or make the people return to Egypt to get more of them, for the Lord has told you you are not to go back that way again. He must not take many wives, or his heart will be led, led astray. He must not accumulate uh, large amounts of silver and gold. Now, this is, this is a really interesting uh, commentary on what the king was supposed to pursue. Because he's not, first of all, it's framed in the negative. He's not supposed to pursue large numbers of hor horses. Horses are military might. Okay, that was the thing. That, that that's what horses stood for at the time. So, the king of Israel is supposed to not have their military spending go way out of whack. He's not supposed to take many wives. He's supposed to be in charge of his own internal desires. One of the things that happened in the ancient world and, and even happens today is people get a certain amount of wealth and power, and they think that they can behave sexually any way that they want to. The king is supposed to keep that part of himself under. Check. And he must not accumulate large amounts of silver and gold. He's not supposed to be driven by the desire to prove his wealth to other people. And, and this sounds like, oh, this is an attitude for the ancient world, but it really matters today as well. Because our attitudes towards sex, money, and power are the things that dictate the things that, are the things that tell the world what we actually value. And the heart of the king is not supposed to be turned towards sex, money, and power. It's supposed to be 
turn toward the Lord. When he takes the throne of his kingdom, he is to write for himself on a scroll a copy of this law taken from that of the Levitical priests. It is to be with him, and he is to read it all the days of his life so that he may learn to revere the Lord his God and follow carefully all the words of this law and these decrees and not consider himself better than his fellow Israelites and turn from, this, from the law to the right or to the left. And then when he and his descendants will reign a long time over the kingdom of Israel. So the role of the king was not to be a military might, was not to be a wealthy businessman, was not to be some sort of Lothario. The role of the king of Israel was to be a legal scholar, someone who was able to hear the word of the Lord and encourage and lead the people as they attempted to lead uh, to follow the word of the Lord as well. So the defining characteristics of the, uh, of the, of the, of the king of Israel, were, of David, and what he was trying to be was not his ability to, to, to kill a bunch of people or have Ishbosheth taken care of, but, but his ability to hear the word of the Lord. And the, the constant theme throughout Deuteronomy is that the people of Israel will experience economic growth, will experience geographic growth with the expansion of their border, will experience military success and peace, not by their ability to manufacture these things on their own or their ability to murder everybody else in order to get them, but by their ability to hear the word of the Lord and act on it, okay? So, this brings us back to the kind of king that David is trying to be. These people are playing by the rules of the ancient world that still exists today, that if I want to shift allegiance from my old boss to my new boss, I murder my old boss and bring his head to my new boss. And this is how David responds. David answered Rechab and his brother Banna, the sons of Rimon, the, 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 the Berethite. As surely as the Lord lives, lives, who has delivered me out of every trouble, when someone told me Saul is dead and thought that he was bringing good news, I seized him and put him to death in Ziklag. That was the reward I gave him for his news. How much more, when wicked men have killed an innocent man in his own house and on his own bed, should I now not demand his blood from your hand and rid the earth of you? So David gave an order to his men, and they killed him. And, and they killed them, and they cut off their hands and feet and hung, their hung the bodies by the pool in Hebron. But they took the head of Ishbosheth and buried it in Abner's to uh, tomb in Hebron. So David doesn't respond the way that they expect him to respond, nor in the way that the kings of the ancient world responds. David uses them to send a message to the rest of the world, which we can argue whether or not it was the, this was the best way to send his, this message. But but David sends a message to his kingdom that I'm going to be different. I'm not going to have people murdering my enemies all over the place. It's not the way this, the, 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 this country is going to work. So David is really trying with all of his heart and all of his mind to be a different king. And we see how this benefits him. So David becomes king, and then the all the, sorry, I missed an A, all the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and said, we are your flesh and blood. In the past, when Saul was king over us, you were the one who led Israel on their military campaigns, and the Lord said to you, you will shepherd my people Israel, and you will become the ruler. And when all the elders of Israel had come to King David at Hebron, the king made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord, and they anointed David king over Israel. So David finally becomes the thing that he has been trying his whole life to become and, and, and has been waiting his whole life to become. So David was 30 years old when he became king, and he reigned 40 years. In Hebron he reigned over Judah seven years and six months, and in Jerusalem he reigned over all Israel and Judah 33 years. 
years. So now he fully steps into the third act of his life. And this period is marked by victory and stability because he is not accumulating wealth and military prowess, and instead he is focusing on the Lord. We see this in the next piece because he's going to get the capital of Jerusalem. The king and his men marched to Jerusalem to attack the Jebusites who lived there. The Jebusites said to David, you will not get in here. Even the blind and the lame can ward you off. This is supposed to be a comical scene because the Jebusites really have no power or connection to anyone. Why are they should be making a deal with David rather than fighting him? Like the way that they would have survived is if they had like opened up the gates and said, yay, David's back. Please don't murder us. And that probably would have gone well for them. But they thought David cannot get in here. Not only that, David lived in Jerusalem for a very long time and was a military leader in Jerusalem and had Saul trying to kill him in Jerusalem. If anyone knows how to get in and out of Jerusalem, it's David. Nevertheless, David captured, they thought David cannot get in here. Nevertheless, David captured the fortress of Zion, which is the city of David. On that day, David said, anyone who conquers the Jebusites will have to use the water shaft to reach those lame and blind who are David's enemies. And that's, that is why they say the blind and the lame will not enter the, the palace. David knew the ways into it, 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 David knew knew the ways into uh, into the city that they didn't. He marched in and took them over. So David took up residence in the fortress and called it the city of David. He built up the area around it from the terraces inward, and he became more and more powerful because the Lord Almighty was with him. And this is something that I want to focus on that he became more and more powerful because the Lord Almighty was with him. And this is important for us to remember because in, in our, we need to retrain our minds and our hearts to recognize success not as the outward trappings of success that the world tells us to acknowledge and that are easy for us to notice, but we need to have our hearts and our minds tuned to the fact that success is having the Lord Almighty with us. Okay? We don't do this well, even in the church, or it's certainly in the world in large, and certainly not within the church. Because if we were taught to talk about who are the most successful people in the world today, our first thought is going to be those who are most wealthy, right? People who manage hedge funds, people who have, who have startups and, 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 and companies, people who have accumulated wealth. And what's, and, and it's, sorry, I don't know where that came from. And it's easy to fall into this trap. I recently got, I got for Christmas, I got a book called Tools of Titans, which was uh, how, basically this person interviewed all of the, uh, uh, like 50 or 60 uh, like extraordinarily successful people and tried to learn from them their, their, their patterns of being and, and how they did what they did. And the reality was there was no patterns of being. I mean, there were some, some of, like a lot of them had this like thousand dollar mattress that like, regulates your temperature all night long like a lot of them had one of those a lot of them uh um didn't eat uh like were on some sort of weird diet that was mostly beans and and seeds and and vitamins you know like but but what was interesting to me was that the people that this man thought were successful tim ferris it's a good book but the th people that he thought were successful were people that had accumulated large amounts of money people that were successful in entertainment and show business, and, uh, and, and people that had sold large amounts of books. Now, I don't know how to be successful in business. I don't know how to accumulate a billion-dollar company. But I've been in show business, and I can tell you it's 99% luck. At least 99% luck. 
And if that world is 99% luck, I have a big hunch that the, that the financial market business that he's talking about is also 99% luck. In fact, most of the things that happen in the world for, between, that divide us between success and failure are really, for the most part, out of our control. And if that's the case, shouldn't we as Christians be more intent on defining our success on is the Lord with us? Is my heart and mind focused on the Lord? Am I loving the Lord my God with all of my heart, soul, mind, and strength? Am I loving my neighbor as myself? Should I not be defining sex success? Should I not be defining success in that way? You can't say success a whole bunch of times in a sermon and not mess up at least once. We live in a world where success is defined by the accumulation of things and by accolades and affirmation, but we are called to live differently. This is what Jesus tells us in the Sermon on the Mount. So do not worry, saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink? For the pagans run after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. Okay? So we chase brand new cars, and we t chase things that are shiny, and we chase everyone telling us how awesome we are, and we chase, you know, being the, the founder of a big hedge fund, you know, but, and we run over these things, uh, run after all these things, but God is telling us that he knows that we need him, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Our call is the same, and we're reminded of this consistently, that our goal in life ought not to be the accumulation of horses or the accumulation of gold and silver or the accumulation of wives and concubines and spouses, but our, our priority ought to be our relationship with the Lord, our ability to hear his voice and enact what he's calling us to do uh, in, in our lives on a day-to-day -day basis, to, to live as he's called us to live and created us to live. And in that, as we prepare to meet God, all of these things will come to us as well. We will have the food that we need. We will have the shelter that we need. We will have all of, these, all of the affirmation and the, and the accolades that we need. Because we will find that all of that stuff that we thought we need doesn't matter nearly as much as we thought it did. Our status and our success is not defined by what we've accomplished or by what we can accumulate, but by our relationship with the Lord. He was successful in all these things because the Lord Almighty was with him. Oh. But there's a shadow on the edge of this that we ought to be aware of because immediately after it says this, that David, after he left Hebron, took more concubines and wives in Jerusalem and more sons and daughters were born to him. And these are the names of the children born to him there. Shamua, uh, Shabab, Nathan, Solomon, Ibhar, Elishua, Nepheg, Jephiah, Elishama, Eliada, and Eliphalet. So we see that David did not live as the kings of Israel ought to live. Because he gave God, okay God, I'm going to give you the military part of everything. I'm, going to, I'm not going to accumulate horses and I'm not going to accumulate wealth. I'm going to trust you for that. But I am going to hold this part back. I'm going to hold on to the. I'll take some wives and concubines. And as we see the danger that creeps in here, is that this area of his life becomes where David has the most trouble over the next 40 years of his life. And this, while this doesn't translate into a downfall in his own lifetime, 
we see that while David took more concubines and wives in Jerusalem, his son Solomon, who became king after him, took hundreds and thousands of wives and concubines and ultimately led to the downfall and the destruction of the entire kingdom because of what he did. So this is where we ought to be concerned because David's worst habits didn't see their worst manifestation in his own life. They saw their worst manifestation in the lives of his children. This is why it's so important for us to get this right, for us to establish how we're going to define success, where we're going to look for, what, for our hope and our care and our, and, and our, uh, and, and our, our satisfaction. Because David has given his military life and his professional life to the Lord, but he's holding on to something. And lingering on the edges of the lives that we give over to God, the temptation to grab what we want, and ultimately it's going to destroy us and it's going to destroy the kingdom around us because the reality of this story is that it doesn't end well. David's security, to, like hang, the Lord Almighty, David has success and the Lord is, all, is with him and that's important and there's forgiveness for David, but he doesn't create patterns that are sustained after him. And that is what we ought to be aware of as well. We want to learn about the heart of David, which, which leaned into God, but we need, to have all, we need to make sure we also remember that our hearts are not clean as David's wasn't. So this is the challenge for us. To believe this as David believed only imperfectly. That our Heavenly Father knows that we need all these things. So ultimately... The question that David has about his ability to trust in the Lord, uh, sorry, his ability to do what the Lord asks him and be a different king ultimately comes down to who do you trust? Do you trust the military might of Abner? Do you trust uh, Rechab and, and, and the, the mercenaries like, like Rechab and, uh, and, I forget the other guy's name, sorry. The mercenary brothers? Do you trust the satisfaction that you're going to get by accumulating wives and concubines and spouses? Do you trust the horses and military might that you're going to get? Or do you trust that the Lord is going to care for you? It's not an easy thing to do. There's lots of things that distract us. But as surely as the sun rises, we've been taught that this is a reminder that God is caring for us all the time. Let's pray together. God, we are distractible people, just as David was. And we, have a and we want to give you our whole hearts, but we have a tendency to hold part of that back. So we ask that, that, that you would help us to give all of ourselves to you. And that we, we would truly define success differently than the rest of the world does. That we would be like David at his best, not David at his worst. And that we wouldn't see the accolades that the world offers and the, and the accumulation of things that the world offers and the, and, the, and the power that the world offers as something that we need and desire that will validate us, but that we trust in you. And that the question that we ask ourselves as we go to bed at night is not, how have I done more to accumulate more today? But, but, uh, but the question we ask ourselves as we go to bed at night is, is the Lord with me? Am I seeking his kingdom and his righteousness? and trusting that you will add all these things to us. So we ask that you would reorient our hearts and our minds, and as we sing songs, make the, these words that we sing true in our hearts. We ask this in the name of your son, Jesus.